Hi, dear listeners. This is Nyla joining you from behind a new homemade pop filter. I'm doing my best to deliver high quality audio given my very mediocre setup at home. So hopefully this is a slight improvement from the last episodes. Unfortunately, a pop filter does nothing against the Montreal street sounds. So I apologize if you hear some roaring cars once in a while. Anyway, today's episode is on February 2021 papers, uh, specifically epidemiological studies, and I'll tell you more right after this quick intro. Welcome to Aminder, a podcast where we summarize the latest publications on Alzheimer's disease for you, so you can spend more time doing awesome research. For every month, you'll find a series of episodes by theme, and each comes with a bibliography. Whether you're in the lab, on the bus, or cooking your meal, we hope you find this podcast useful and accessible. So we've got 23 papers to go through today, and these cover a wide range of epidemiological studies from global disease burden and prevalence to environmental and lifestyle risk factors to other illnesses that may proceed or occur in tandem with Alzheimer's disease. As a reminder, we summarize the papers based on abstracts, and so if there's a paper that interests you based on my summaries, please follow up on it in the accompanying bibliography. I'll be numbering papers throughout so that they're easy to find. And I'll also let you know that I often abbreviate Alzheimer's disease to AD and mild cognitive impairment to MCI, and any other abbreviations I will define along the way. So let's get started with two papers on disease prevalence and progression. The first paper is called Burden of Neurological Disorders Across the U.S. from 1990 to 2017. This was published by a huge list of authors, firstly by the GBD 2017 U.S. Neurological Disorders Collaborators, and the first author is Fagin or Feigen, and the last author is Murray. And this paper was published in JAMA. The purpose of the study was to provide an accurate and up-to-date estimate of the incidence, prevalence, mortality, and disability-adjusted life years, or in other words, the burden estimates of neurological disorders in the U.S. The authors conducted a systematic analysis of the Global Burden of Disease uh, 2017 study, deriving data from 48 contiguous U.S. states, Alaska, and Hawaii. They looked at 14 different neurological disorders, and from those, AD came out as one of the most burdensome disorders in the U.S., along with stroke, other dementia, and migraine. The burden of almost all the neurological disorders increased between the study years, from 1990 to 2017, largely due to the aging population. You can check out the paper for the findings on other neurological disorders. Next up, we have paper number two, which is more specifically on the progression of AD in three European countries. So this was published in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease. The first author is Lado, and the last author is Ambageyankar. And uh, the title is Assessing the Progression of Alzheimer's Disease in Real-World Settings in Three European Countries. This longitudinal prospective study assessed the progression of AD in Spain, Germany, and the UK by characterizing cognitive, functional, and behavioral changes during the follow-up period between 6 and 24 months. A sample of 616 participants with an established clinical diagnosis of AD were recruited from 69 different sites in these three countries. 
The authors found that cognitive symptoms were usually first reported around 1.1 years before an official AD diagnosis and 1.4 years before the first treatment. Based on many mental state exam scores, patients who were originally diagnosed with mild or moderate AD progressed to moderate or severe AD after a median of 3.7 and 11.1 years respectively. The authors also found a deterioration of cognitive, functional, and neuropsychiatric functions during the follow-up period, which, as I mentioned, ranged between six months and two years. Moving right along, we have two papers on air pollution, and I've covered this topic quite often in environmental risk factor episodes, so in previous risk factor episodes and epidemiological studies, a common topic is um, fine particulate exposure, specifically fine particulate matter that is under 2.5 micrometers, which is referred to as PM 2.5, and this has been linked in animal studies as well as human studies to Alzheimer's disease. So paper number three is fine particulate exposure and clinical aggravation in neurodegenerative diseases in New York State. This was published in Environmental Health Perspectives by first author Nunez and last author Kaya Mortzoglu. And my apologies to all of the authors um, if I ever mispronounce your name. If you happen to be listening, please send us a little message and feel free to correct us. Anyway, the authors examined the potential association between long-term exposure to PM2.5 and disease aggravation in Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. So I'll abbreviate these diseases to AD, PD, and ALS. And they did this using the first hospitalization as a surrogate of clinical aggravation. They calculated the annual number of first hospitalizations with a diagnosis of AD, PD, or ALS per county, and also stratified these by urbanicity, sex, and age. Annual PM2.5 concentrations were estimated by a prediction model at a 1 km2 resolution, which the authors aggregated to population-weighted county averages. They found a positive non-linear association between PM2.5 and PD, and also between PM2.5 and ALS, and suggestive evidence of an association with AD. The effects for PD and ALS were modified by age, with a positive association in patients under the age of 70. In contrast, there was insufficient evidence of effect modification by sex or urbanization level for any of the outcomes. The authors conclude that the current American standards of PM2.5 concentration may not adequately protect the aging population. Paper 4 is also on air pollution, but this time regarding its association with amyloid beta deposition, which, as you likely know, is a key feature of AD pathology. And amyloid beta I will abbreviate to A-beta. This was published in JAMA Neurology. The first author is Iacarino, and the last author is Rabinovici. And the title is Association Between Ambient Air Pollution and Amyloid Positron Emission Tomography Positivity in Older Adults with Cognitive Impairment. The authors took advantage of positron emission tomography, or PET, technology, which can be used to measure A-beta positivity in the brain, i.e. to see whether a person has this hallmark feature of AD. In this cross-sectional study, data was taken from the Imaging Dementia Evidence for Amyloid Scanning Study, which included U.S. participants with cognitive impairment who received an amyloid PET scan with one of three A-beta tracers. 
The author selected a sample of around 18,000 participants who had either MCI or dementia to compare their results to the ambient air pollution in their place of residence, specifically the concentrations of PM2.5 and ground-level ozone. They looked at the air quality both around 14 years and one year before the PET scan was taken. For both time periods, living in areas with higher estimated biennial PM2.5 concentrations was associated with a higher likelihood of amyloid PET scan positivity. Check the paper for specific statistics, but I'll also mention that there was no modification by sex or clinical stage. Lastly, exposure to higher ozone concentrations was not associated with amyloid PET scan positivity in either of the time windows. The authors highlight the need to consider the relationship between airborne toxic pollutants, particularly PM2.5, and A-beta pathology in public health policy decisions. While we're on the topic of inhaling toxins, I have a couple papers for you on smoking. This first one examines blood plasma levels of brain-derived neurotrophic factor, or BDNF, in elderly smokers. And BDNF is a protein that is important for neuronal survival and plasticity, and has hence been implicated in memory. So paper number five was published in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease, and the title is Plasma Brain-Derived Neurotrophic Factor Levels Are Associated with Aging and Smoking, But Not with Future Dementia in the Rotterdam Study. The first author is Galle, and the last author is Van Dan. Peripheral levels of BDNF are reduced in people with dementia, but it's unclear if this is a cause or consequence of diseases such as AD. In this study, the authors examined the relationship between peripheral BDNF levels and the risk of dementia. This was done in the context of the Rotterdam study, in which plasma BDNF levels were assessed in 758 participants who were followed up for up to 16 years. Using Cox proportional hazards models, adjusting for age and sex, the authors found no association between plasma BDNF and the risk of dementia. Rather, linear regressions showed that BDNF was positively associated with age, smoking, and being of the female sex, but not with physical activity level. So no association with increased risk of dementia, but some interesting results to follow up on. Paper number six focuses more specifically on smoking, namely whether a history of smoking affects cognitive decline. And the answer is right in the title, which is a history of cigarette smoking is associated with faster functional decline and reduction of enterorhinal cortex volume in mild cognitive impairment. This was published by first author Chen, last author Wu, in association with the Alzheimer Disease Neuroimaging Initiative, and it was published in the journal Aging. This group examined the effect of cigarette smoking on a number of factors in people with MCI, namely change in global cognition, verbal memory, functional performance, hippocampal volume, enterorhinal cortex volume, brain glucose metabolism, and CSF AD pathologies. The latter refers to biomarkers of AD pathology, such as amyloid beta-42, total tau, and phosphotau found in the cerebrospinal fluid. If this is a topic of interest for you, um, we've got a whole episode dedicated to that. Back to the study, the authors followed 870 participants with MCI, which included 618 non-smokers, so no history of smoking, and 252 smokers, which was a lifetime history of smoking. 
Using linear mixed models that were adjusted for several covariates, the authors found a number of associations. Firstly, among older people with MCI, smokers showed faster decline in functional performance compared to non-smokers, as well as a steeper decline in enterinal cortex volume. However, a history of cigarette smoking was not associated with changes in CSF-AD biomarkers over time. As I mentioned, that last study was conducted with the Alzheimer's Disease Neuroimaging Initiative, or ADNI, and this is a huge clinic-based study sample that comes up in several papers that we cover. It's important to consider whether these study samples are actually generalizable to community-based settings, which is what this next paper does by comparing it to the atherosclerosis risk in communities study. So paper number seven is generalizability of findings from a clinical sample to community-based sample, a comparison of ADNI and ERIC, or A-R-I-C. And this was published in Alzheimer's and Dementia. The first author is uh, Giannatasio, and the last author is Power. And again, this is also in association with the Alzheimer's Disease Neuroimaging Initiative. The authors estimated cohort-specific associations among risk factors, cognitive test scores, and neuroimaging outcomes in order to identify and quantify whether there was a significant and substantively meaningful difference in the results between cohorts. So they found that the proportion of associations that differed significantly between the cohorts ranged from 27 to 34% across sample subsets. Many of these differences, including APOEE4 status and amyloid positivity, were substantively significant, which means they were more than just statistically significant. And this suggests that findings from clinical samples, such as the ADNI or ADNI, should also be confirmed in more representative samples, particularly given that they're seeing differences in key hallmarks or risk factors of AD. Okay, moving along... We have four papers that I've uh, clumped together as psychosocial papers, and the first one of these is on education. This is another uh, lifestyle or maybe modifiable risk factor, arguably, that comes up often in my episodes, and it's been shown or at least suggested that education, so higher years of education equals higher cognitive reserve and protection from cognitive decline. And this next study was interested in seeing whether there are sex differences in the role of education and cognitive aging. So in case you don't know, women have a higher risk of AD. So this was published in Lancet Public Health. The first author is Bloomberg and the last author is Sabia. And the title is Sex Differences and the Role of Education in Cognitive Aging, Analysis of Two UK-Based Prospective Cohort Studies. And this is paper number eight. This group analyzed data from two prospective cohort studies in the UK, namely the English Longitudinal Study of Aging and the Whitehall 2 study to assess sex differences in cognitive performance as well as decline before and after adjusting for education generally, as well as categorized education into high versus low education level. The authors took the results of memory and fluency tests from the two studies and standardized the cognitive scores from each study based on the mean and standard deviation of the corresponding test among participants aged 50 to 59 years of age who all had a secondary education. 
From a sample of nearly 16,000 participants between the two studies, the analysis showed that women had better memory scores than men in all birth cohorts, irrespective of education level. Interestingly, in earlier birth cohorts, so in older generations, men had better fluency scores than women in the low education group, whereas women had better fluency scores than men in the later birth cohorts and in the high education group. While memory decline was faster in men than in women, the rate of fluency decline did not differ by sex. The authors suggest that decreasing disparities between men and women may be due to increased educational opportunities and could eventually attenuate the sex differences in dementia and cognitive decline. This is an interesting suggestion. However, I've also previously summarized a lot of uh, more biological and hormonal sex difference papers, so there might be some underlying biological factors that cause the increased risk among women. Moving on to paper number nine, this one also looks at sex differences, but this time with regards to the potential adverse consequences of long working hours. The title is The Impact of Long Working Hours on Cognitive Function, a follow-up study with gender stratification. And this was published in the journal Alzheimer's Disease by first author Lee and last author Lee. And there's just one middle author, which is Choi. This study investigated whether long working hours is associated with a decline in cognitive function using 12 years of data from the Korean Longitudinal Study on Aging. This included about 2,500 participants who were evaluated using the Korean version of the Mini Mental State Examination. Cox proportional hazard regression models were used to evaluate declines in the test score over the 12-year study period. The authors found that the overall hazard ratio of cognitive decline in long working hours was 1.13, and when categorized by sex, women with long working hours had a hazard ratio of 1.50, which means 1.5 times higher than normal risk. The test scores significantly decreased after working long hours for five or more years. So in conclusion, don't work too hard, which I should probably take my own advice. I'm recording this on a Sunday evening. But let's go on to paper number 10. This one is switching gears a little. It looks at how cognitive impairment relates to toxic stress and different resilience-promoting factors, and whether associations differed based on race and ethnicity. So paper 10 was published by first author Nkawata and last author Ezimama, and it was published in the journal International Journal of Environmental Research and Public Health. And the title of paper number 10 is The Relationship of Race, Psychosocial Stress, and Resiliency Indicators to Neurocognitive Impairment Among Older Americans Enrolled in the Health and Retirement Study, a Cross-Sectional Study. The authors used data from a nationally representative sample of around 6,300 Americans 50 years and older who were enrolled in the Health and Retirement Study between 2012 and 2014. Neurocognitive impairment was defined as a physician's diagnosis of a D-slash-dementia with a total cognition score under or equal to 10. Domains such as toxic stress, resilience, and race-slash-ethnicity were self-reported. In this study, toxic stress referred to everyday discrimination and chronic stressors, and mastery was used as an indicator of resilience. 83% of the study participants were white, 13% were African-American, and 4% reported as other. 
Chronic stress, discrimination, and low mastery were each associated with higher risk of cognitive impairment. The association between cognitive impairment and low mastery was dependent on discrimination and ethnicity. Specifically, low mastery associated risk for cognitive impairment was only observed among participants who denied experiencing discrimination, but the association was absent among those who had experienced discrimination. Moreover, those with African-American ethnicity were associated with neurocognitive impairment risk only in those reporting high mastery, so high resilience. These findings suggest that adverse social experiences may counteract mastery-associated cognitive benefits among the African-American population, and that toxic stress should be considered for its adverse effects on cognitive function. In a similar vein, this next paper investigated loneliness as a risk factor for cognitive impairment in six different low- and middle-income countries. Paper 11 is entitled, Is Loneliness Associated with Mild Cognitive Impairment in Low- and Middle-Income Countries? And first author is Smith, the last author is Koya Nagi, and this was published in the International Journal of Geriatric Psychiatry. This cross-sectional study looked at nationally representative data from the World Health Organization study on global aging and adult health, specifically in China, Ghana, India, Mexico, Russia, and South Africa. The definition of MCI was based on the National Institute on Aging and Alzheimer's Association criteria. The final study sample consisted of around 19,000 individuals aged 50 to 64 years and termed middle age, and another 13,600 individuals who were over the age or equal to the age of 65, so those are older adults. The authors found that over the two age groups, loneliness was associated with a 1.43 higher odds of MCI, but this was not statistically significant, except for specifically in China and South Africa. The association between loneliness and MCI was also significant in older adults specifically, and that was regardless of country. The authors suggest that strategies to reduce loneliness should be considered to combat the incidence of MCI in low economic settings. And I would say in all settings, generally especially given the effects COVID has had on isolation and loneliness. So a very topical paper and a reminder to call someone that might be feeling lonely right now. Okay, we are about halfway through our papers. Let's take a quick break here before we get into some comorbidities and health risk factors of AD. Hey listeners, I'm here to let you know A-Minder is recruiting. If you're interested in joining us, shoot us an email at aminderpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Enjoy the rest of the episode. And with that, I am back for the second half. So now let's transition to some potential comorbidities of MCI and AD. And we'll start with some psychiatric comorbidities. So some psychiatric uh, illnesses or mental health risk factors that could associate with AD and cognitive decline. Paper number 12 links very well with the last paper that I covered right before the break, and you'll see why from the title. It is Depression and the Diagnosis of MCI in a Culturally Diverse Sample in the United States. This was published in the Archives of Clinical Neuropsychology by first author Lang and last author, Duara. 
And this study had two aims. The first was to analyze whether there were ethnic differences in the severity of depressive symptoms between groups of older adults classified as either cognitively normal or having amnestic MCI. The second aim was to investigate whether depressive symptoms influenced the cognitive performance differently based on ethnicity, and that was while controlling for other covariates. So specifically, the study included 164 Hispanics residing in the United States and 100 European American women. Depressive symptoms were measured with the Geriatric Depression Scale, so the GDS-15, and multiple cognitive tests were used to evaluate semantic memory, confrontation naming, and executive function. You can check the abstract for details on the statistical analysis, but essentially the authors found that participants with MCI exhibited higher depression than those in the control group. This was the case in both ethnicities after controlling for age, education, gender, and many mental state examination score. And greater levels of depression also predicted lower scores on the cognitive tests, with confrontation naming and semantic memory being affected in European Americans, and scores for executive function being affected in Hispanic American participants. Okay, moving on, paper number 13 looked at a related condition, namely anhedonia, but this time specifically in non-depressed individuals. And anhedonia refers to the inability to feel pleasure or a reduction of previously enjoyable daily activities. Paper 13 was published in the International Journal of Environmental Research and Public Health. The first author is Vaquero Puyello, and the last author is Santa Barbara, and the title is Anhedonia as a Potential Risk Factor of Alzheimer's Disease in a Community-Dwelling Elderly Sample. Results from the Zara Demp Project. The authors used data from the Zaragoza Dementia and Depression Project, so the Zaradump Project, which is a longitudinal epidemiological study on dementia and depression, and they did this to examine a sample of around 2,800 cognitively normal individuals 65 years and older. Participants were followed for 4.5 years, and the geriatric mental state examination was used to identify cases of anhedonia, whereas the DSM-4 was used to diagnose cases of AD. The authors found a significant association between anhedonia cases and AD risk in a univariate analysis, which had a stronger association in a fully adjusted model. The authors suggest that cognitively intact individuals with anhedonia should be prioritized for preventative strategies to mitigate the risk of AD. Next up, we have two papers on sleep. Sleep troubles can precede the diagnosis of neurodegenerative disorders by years, and some research is examining whether they directly contribute to disease progression. The focus of paper number 14, however, is more so whether insomnia can predict clinical diagnosis of memory impairment or dementia. It was published in Sleep Medicine by first author Beidun and last author Zondaman, and the title is Insomnia is a Predictor of Diagnosed Memory Problems, 2006-2016 Health and Retirement Study. This study conducted secondary analyses on around 9,500 participants aged 65 years and older who had completed the 2006 wave of the health and retirement study. These participants were followed up for eight years to determine if insomnia symptom scores were associated with time-to-onset of physician-diagnosed memory problems or dementia, and you can check the abstract for the specifics on the diagnoses that were considered. 
using Cox proportional hazard models that were adjusted for sociodemographic lifestyle and health characteristics, the authors found that severe insomnia symptoms were associated with increased risk of physician-diagnosed memory problems. Individuals who reported a change in insomnia symptoms over the study period were also more likely to be diagnosed with dementia. An increase in the severity of insomnia symptoms over time conferred the highest risk of memory problems or dementia. So hopefully that doesn't keep you up at night. That was a terrible joke. Let's move on to paper number 15, which is in line with the last one. The title is Examining Sleep Deficiency and Disturbance and Their Risk for Incident Dementia and All-Cause Mortality in Older Adults Across Five Years in the United States. The first author is Robbins, the last author is Chaisler, and this was published in the journal Aging. The author studied a sample of around 2,800 participants in the National Health and Aging Trend Study, a nationally representative longitudinal study of Medicare beneficiaries in the U.S. who were aged 65 years and older. Surveys on sleep disturbance and duration were administered at baseline, and the authors examined the relationship between these sleep disturbances with incident dementia and all-cause mortality over the following five years. They also controlled for confounding variables. Short sleep duration, that is under five hours a night, and a sleep onset latency over 30 minutes were both associated with incident dementia. Risk of all-cause mortality was associated with difficulty maintaining alertness, napping, poor sleep quality, and very short sleep duration. So again, under five hours. So consider this yet another reminder not to work too hard and to get a good night's sleep. This brings us to other health risk factors and comorbidities. These ones are more physical illnesses. Um, and I have eight papers that are sort of all over the place. So let's start with one on frailty which refers to many different factors that determine how prone someone is to illness or injury. And this comes up fairly often with regards to dementia risk. So let's dive into the potential relationship with paper number 16, and that is frailty and neuropathology in relation to dementia status, the Cambridge City Over 75's cohort study. This was published by first author Wallace, last author Brain, in... International Psychogeriatrics. The authors recruited adults aged 75 years and older from general practice registries in the UK back in 1985 and used a 39-item frailty index and a 15-item neuropathological index in order to operationalize frailty and neuropathology, respectively. Dementia status was determined by clinical consensus at the time of death, and the relationship to pathology was tested for participants who had autopsy records, which was a total of 183 participants. The relationship to frailty was evaluated in a representative sample of the survey respondents, namely 542 participants. The authors found that individuals with dementia were more frail had lower cognition scores, and a higher neuropathological burden. The latter was significantly and independently associated with frailty. Assuming a causal relationship based on population-attributable fraction analyses, the authors suggest that preventing severe frailty could have avoided 14.2% of the dementia cases in this cohort. 
Related to frailty is the risk of falling, which is the topic of paper number 17. This paper is Modified Study Fall Risk Categories Predict Incident Cognitive Impairment. It was published by first author Crow, last author Batsis, and it was published in the Journal of American Geriatric Society. The authors wanted to know whether higher risk of falling also caused higher rates of subsequent cognitive impairment. They conducted secondary analysis on cross-sectional and longitudinal data from the National Health and Aging Trend Study, which is a study we saw just a few papers back regarding sleep deficiency. This analysis included over 7,100 participants with a median age category of 75 to 80 years, half of which fell into a low fall risk at baseline. By the way, this is categorized by a modified algorithm of the study, which stands for Stop Elderly Accidents, Death, and Injuries. At an 8-year follow-up period and in a fully adjusted model, the risk of developing cognitive impairment was slightly higher in the moderate fall risk category, and participants in the high fall risk category had nearly twice the risk of cognitive decline. Another oft-mentioned topic in potential risk or protective factors of AD is body mass index, or BMI. I covered a paper a few months back regarding BMI variability and the association with AD, which is also the topic of paper number 18 in today's episode. This was published in Scientific Reports by first author Kang, last author Kim, and the title is Body Mass Index Trajectories and the Risk of Alzheimer's Disease Among Older Adults. The authors analyzed data from over 45,000 participants whose BMI were measured three times over six years in the Korean National Health Insurance Service Health Screening Cohort. They used Cox regression models to evaluate the effect of two- and four-year BMI changes and BMI variability on the risk of AD. The relationship between these factors was non-significant in men, although the risk of AD was higher in men whose BMI had decreased by 10-15% to over 4 years. In women, AD risk increased starting at a 5% BMI loss over 2 years. Overall, BMI loss over 2 or 4 years was associated with increased risk for AD, and risk also increased in women with higher BMI variability. This next paper isn't directly related to AD, but rather to cardiovascular diseases, which as I've mentioned are a known risk factor of dementia. So the title of paper number 19 is Egg and Cholesterol Consumption and Mortality from Cardiovascular and Different Causes in the United States, a population-based cohort study. It was published in PLOS Medicine by Zhuang, first author, and Zhang, last author. You've likely heard or perhaps participated in heated debates about whether egg and cholesterol consumption are detrimental to cardiovascular health and longevity. This was the question these authors tested in over 521,000 U.S. participants aged 50 to 71 years. These were originally recruited in the mid-90s and prospectively followed up until the end of 2011. The authors evaluated intake of whole eggs, egg white and substitutions, or substitutes, and cholesterol using a validated food frequency questionnaire. During the median follow-up of 16 years, there were just over 129,300 deaths, nearly 39,000 of which were from cardiovascular diseases. 
Egg and cholesterol intakes were both positively associated with all-cause mortality, as well as deaths from cardiovascular disease or cancer. You can check the paper for the specific hazard ratios, but I'll also let you know that egg white or substitute consumers had lowered all-cause mortality and mortality from stroke, cancer, respiratory disease, and Alzheimer's disease compared with non-consumers. It should be noted that these results relied on self-report measures from participants, and confounding variables were present due to it being a longitudinal study, despite the authors adjusting for several dietary and lifestyle risk factors. Nonetheless, it appears that whole egg consumption and cholesterol could compromise cardiovascular health and long-term survival. So you can reference this study at your next breakfast debate. Speaking of cardiovascular health, we've got a paper on stroke. This is paper number 20. It was published in Alzheimer's and Dementia by first author Wang and last author Zhu. And the title is Shared Risk and Protective Factors Between Alzheimer's Disease and Ischemic Stroke a population-based longitudinal study. The Sweden-based prospective cohort study examined shared risk and protective factors between ischemic stroke and AD as measured by hazard ratios that were significant and went in the same direction for both diseases. So what I mean is if the factor increased the association or decreased the association in both diseases. And I'm realizing it's ischemic stroke, not ischemic stroke, but whatever. Nearly 2,500 older adults who were AD and cerebrovascular disease-free at baseline were followed up for up to 15 years. At the end of the study period, 132 independent cases of AD and 260 cases of ischemic stroke were identified. The shared risk factors included low education, sedentary lifestyle, and heart diseases, whereas high levels of psychological well-being, actively engaging in leisurely activities, and a rich social network were shared protective factors. The authors reported that in total, around 58% of AD or stroke cases could have been prevented if individuals had over one protective factor and no risk factors, and you can check the paper for more details on risk reduction in individuals who did have risk factors of AD or cardiovascular disease. Okay, only three papers between me and my dinner. We are going to pivot once again to another potential risk factor, namely viral infections, and whether antiviral treatment could also be a protective factor against dementia. So paper number 21 is Herpes Virus Infections, Antiviral Treatment, and the Risk of Dementia, a registry-based cohort study in Sweden. The first author is Lopatko, the last author is Löfheim, and it was published in Alzheimer's and Dementia. This study looked at the association between AD and two viral infections, that is herpes simplex virus type 1 and varicella zoster virus. The authors enrolled over 265,000 participants aged 50 years and older who were diagnosed with one or the other virus and were receiving antiviral medication over a 12-year period. Controls were matched in a 1 to 1 ratio by sex and birth year. The authors reported that herpes virus, without antiviral treatment, increased dementia risk, whereas antiviral treatment was associated with decreased risk of dementia. This suggests that the antiviral medication may reduce long-term risk of dementia among individuals with overt signs of herpes infection, and that the latter could be related to AD pathogenesis. 
Speaking of treatments of other illnesses, chemotherapy has come up fairly often for its potential relationship to AD and cognitive decline, but with mixed results. This is a topic I've covered in previous risk factor episodes. So let's see what paper number 22 has to say on the matter. This was published by first author Akushevich and last author Kertai, and the title is Chemotherapy and the Risk of Alzheimer's Disease in Colorectal Cancer Survivors, Evidence from the Medicare System. And you can find this paper in JCO Oncology Practice. The authors conducted a retrospective cohort study of around 135,800 individuals over 65 years of age that had been diagnosed with colorectal cancer between 1998 and 2007, and they did this using Medicare data. After inverse probability weighting to account for population differences between chemotherapy and non-chemotherapy groups, the authors found that chemotherapy was associated with a decreased risk of AD and a lower risk of other neurodegenerative conditions, including dementia. The only adverse effect of chemotherapy that remained significant was cerebral degeneration. The AD-specific effects remained significant for up to six years after diagnosis and were stratified by chemotherapy agent type. So this is an interesting addition to the chemotherapy question, as previous papers, at least the ones I've covered, found that chemotherapy increases the risk of AD. Okay, so our last paper is on hearing impairment, which is another common topic for AD and dementia risk factors. The authors of paper number 23 examined whether the use of hearing aids could influence the conversion from MCI to dementia and its progression. So paper 23 was published in Alzheimer's and Dementia by first author Bouchouk and last author McGuire, and the title is Association of the Use of Hearing Aids with the Conversion from Mild Cognitive Impairment to Dementia and Progression of Dementia, a Longitudinal Retrospective Study. This group used a large referral-based cohort of around 2,100 hearing-impaired patients from the National Alzheimer's Coordinating Center. They performed various Cox regression models to assess the effects of hearing aid use on the risk of conversion from MCI to dementia and the risk of death in hearing-impaired participants. Dementia progression was assessed using the Clinical Dementia Rating Sum of Boxes scores, which is a common diagnostic tool. The authors found that the use of hearing aids amongst uh, MCI participants significantly reduced the risk of developing all-cause dementia. The rate of dementia progression was also lower in participants with hearing aids, but no association was found between hearing aid use and the risk of death. These findings point towards the importance of hearing aid use for hearing-impaired individuals, although the causality between hearing aids and incident dementia needs to be tested further. So that's it for today. I hope you found this episode useful and accessible. And I'd like to thank everyone who has been working behind the scenes on A Minder in general. But specifically for this episode, uh, I'd like to thank Christy, Jacques, and Ellen R. for sorting, V for checking over my script, Sanjana and Ellen K. for the audio editing, Sarah for the word cloud, and Christy for getting this episode onto YouTube. And that's right, we've got a YouTube channel now. You can also find our house musician, which is Anusha, on YouTube under AK Music, or on SoundCloud under Anusha Kamesh. And the piece that you hear throughout our podcast is Journey of a Neurotransmitter. 
If you've been listening to us for a while, you might have noticed that we've had to cut down the themes that we cover each month. This is due to the time constraints of our team. And if you'd like to help us alleviate those constraints, we would be happy for more team members. You can contact us by email or through social media. You can also sign up to our mailing list to keep posted on upcoming episodes and for the access to the bibliographies, which you can also find in the episode notes. I think that's all. Enjoy the rest of your day or evening. Don't work too hard and get a good night's sleep.